In the love and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace is yours. Amen. Just yesterday, I was in the grocery store, and I was checking out, and there in the magazine rack was this magazine. It's Life magazine, and it says, Jesus, with a great big picture of his face, who do you say that I am? Which is something in Matthew 16 that Jesus said to his disciples, because he asked what the world is saying, and who do you say I am? Obviously, the magazine is saying, we're here articles after article about who Christians say Jesus is and who other people say he is, and what all different stripes of Christians and religious people, what they say about Jesus Christ. This is nothing new. These kinds of magazines come out every Christmas season and every Easter season. And you know, this is just like clickbait for a, a preacher. I just got to buy it. Usually, I want to just see what they're saying out there, and I want to see what the editor's choices were for the kind of scholars that they asked, because many of the scholars they asked to help them write their articles are unbelieving scholars who say many things about Jesus that the world is getting from the grocery store magazine rack, but they're not getting from the Bible. And I want to help all people to know the real Jesus. And so it, it fits today because our text for our meditation is from Matthew 22. This quote here, who do you say that I am, is Matthew 16. But Jesus was constantly, always defining himself for the world. And we see it in the New Testament very boldly. And in, in, in Matthew 22, for the season of Advent, we have this wonderful little story of Jesus in the temple on Tuesday of the last week of his life. In his last great teaching day, he is turning out the lights at the end of this day on his public teaching, and he will march to the cross at the hands of the people he tried to teach in the temple courts. On Tuesday and Friday, they would put him on a cross. And so we're going to learn a lot, and it's a passionate moment in Jesus' life, and we're going to see what he has to say to us and them in Matthew chapter 22. So it's the biggest question that this magazine has as a title, Who Do You Say That I Am? It's, it's the biggest question that you'll ever answer in your entire life. It has no importance. And when you ask who Jesus is, in addition to that, you are asking yourself, and why did he come to earth? Or what was the meaning of his life? And you can imagine in a magazine like this, I've only got to read part of it, but I've already seen it in a magazine like this. There are varying opinions. It's nothing new. It may be shocking if you grew up in the church around your church community as a little child and everyone trusted in Christ and talked about him as the Savior. It's kind of a shock and a surprise when you get out into middle school, high school, college, and into the world and you find out that maybe it's not the most popular opinion to believe that Jesus was real, that he was the Son of God, that he was the savior of the world and was your only hope. The magazine on the very first page of the first article, the, the writer of the first article introduces these doubts as part of the many choices that are out there in the world about Jesus. And they were the very same kind of doubts that were there while he stood in front of them in the temple itself. I'm going to read to you just a paragraph or so from this article. The writer says in this magazine, he was, um, Jesus was right for the time. He is right today. To some, Jesus is the Son of God, the anointed, the Christ, born to a virgin just 2,000 years ago. 
To others, Jesus is just a man, albeit a man, who spurred through his teachings an exemplary life. Several faiths now incorporated into Christianity. And to still others, he is little more than a myth. Maybe he lived, they say, but his stature as a transcendent human being is a novelistic invention of the Apostle Paul and the writers of the four Gospels, they say, who required, they required a charismatic anchor for their nascent churches. I think you pronounce that nascent churches. It means newly formed. Jesus, they say, is an idea. But whether he's an idea or a man, Jesus is a model that day-to-day encourages much good. He is a mirror that reflects, for many of us, our hopes. We see Jesus as many different people, a dutiful son, an ascetic, a revolutionary, a sage, a martyr, depending on our personal beliefs and indeed our personal needs. A great many of us Christians and not want Jesus on our team. We want to be his teammate. We want to be like him, and we want him to be like us. I think that's, this writer's a really good writer. I think he's rather fair. If he's, he is showing this, uh, uh, the survey of the landscape of the ideas out there about Jesus Christ. But here's the simple truth. Jesus doesn't leave us with a broad set of choices on what we think about him. When you read what he said in the four Gospels, which are the oldest writings of his closest disciples, inspired by God to record it accurately, then you see Jesus talk about who he is in a very powerful and narrow way. Like the narrow tip of an arrow, though, very effective to pierce into our heart the truth from heaven to earth for all people and for our benefit. So here we go. We're going to see him in the temple court. He's been there all day. It's in the afternoon, probably. The, the, there's a whole bunch of everyday folks, people that are the working class, the working poor, and they've come to the temple to learn and to, to mostly to sacrifice and worship. And Jesus has been healing people during that day, and he's been having crowds around him, and he has a ton of impromptu speeches that he's giving. Some are parables. Some are just straight-up teaching. A lot of what he's saying, though, is our answers he's being asked, especially questions from different uh, cliques or Jewish groups that are trying to discredit him in front of the masses because these leaders are threatened by Jesus and they don't believe in him. So there was a group called the Herodians, and they asked about paying taxes to Caesar. There's the Sadducees, who are the more high-minded, liberal-minded Jewish leaders that have control of the temple courts, and they ask Jesus about resurrection and eternal life in heaven, and they think they've stumped him on an idea about a man who had, a woman who had seven husbands who were all brothers, but in eternity, there's no way she could be all of their, the wife to all of them, and they think they've stumped him. Then somebody asks him, that's one of the the Pharisees and scribes, they say, let's see if you know the greatest commandment in all the laws that are in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he adds a commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He knows that they are wanting to kill him. 
by Tuesday night, this is Tuesday afternoon, they're going to actually make their plans with Judas to have him arrested and have him put to death by the Roman uh, governor named Pontius Pilate by the end of the week. But he knows all of this is going on. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He also had once said, nobody takes my life from me. Lay it down of my own accord. He's there for a purpose. But they don't believe that purpose. They do believe that there was supposed to be a Messiah coming, um, an anointed one to help Israel, God's chosen people. And so uh, he is that Messiah, but he's nothing of what they expected. He's so much different. They have a magazine idea of what Jesus is supposed to be, which is focusing mostly on this life in their time for Jews. And so Jesus is struggling mightily to reach them, to teach them who he really is. You know why? Because he loves them. So here he goes. He's, he asked them a question. So far, they've been asking all the questions. But he poses a question to them. And it's a remarkable moment of teaching. And I want to share it with you. It's Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Which is another uh, translation of the word Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, everyone in Judaism used a phrase, son of David. So they said, he is the son of David. Jesus knew that would be their answer. Who do you think Messiah's son is the son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, when speaking about him by the spirit who inspired David, calls him Lord instead of son only? For he says, and then now Jesus quotes Psalm 110, the first verse. Why, how is it that David calls him Lord, speaking by the Spirit, when he says, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Notice the Lord said to David's Lord, my Lord. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You see, they had heard people calling Jesus the son of David. Let me just kind of lay out the gospel of Matthew for you. Matthew, this is Matthew chapter 22. Matthew's telling the story and quoting Jesus and the the other people around him in the stories. But Matthew's the one inspired by God to record all this for us. And he had a, a construction of his, his gospel story built around five speeches. And he's, and he's writing for Jewish people first so they would learn Jesus was their long-promised Christ or Messiah. So in chapter 1, Matthew gives this genealogy and he says, Jesus is the son of Adam. He's the son of Abraham, family tree. He's the son of Judah, from Abraham's family, and then he's the son of David from Judah's family, who was the great king. Now, David and his kingdom in that holy land was the most glorious, established time, and for his son Solomon after him, of all the history of Israel. It was a united kingdom. Their, their borders went as far as they possibly had ever gone and ever would go. 
<clears throat> even today, their borders of Israel are much tighter than what David had. David, David was their great king, a man after God's own heart, had special favor from God. Even when he committed heinous sins, he didn't lose his kingdom the way Saul did. And David was the, the measurement of all the other kings after him. It would say in the Bible for all the pages after him, this king compared to David was much more evil or he was as good as his father, David. And David, before he died, was told, someday from your descendants, the Lord is going to raise up a man, a, a descendant, a son of David, who will reign on your throne and from sea to sea all over the world. Wow. Well, what happened was Solomon was David's son first, and he reigned over what David had conquered. And then Solomon essentially lost the kingdom and it got divided in two after him. And then later, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom after that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then the, after the Babylonians lost world power, the Persians were allowed and sent back Jews to that area, but it was just a little remnant of what they had ever been before. And up until Jesus' day, because that was 500 years before Jesus that they were sent back, of Jesus' day, they're just a little postage stamp group of people who are God's chosen people on earth waiting for the long-promised Messiah to come and to rescue them on planet earth. The prophecies that they knew were about the coming anointed one, and they anointed their kings and their prophets and their priests. So this anointed one would for sure, in their prophecies, be a king. They, they, they felt, they believed that the prophecies were saying, and they had good reason to, many of the words about the, the anointed Messiah, the Christ, talk about his military prowess in rescuing God's Psalm 2 that I read earlier in the service all about the sun and his armies and kiss the sun lest he be angry. And the Lord said, I, will, I, I, I give you the reign over the earth. And then this Psalm 110 that Jesus quotes, they know is another messianic psalm, and he's called the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, in a later verse than what Jesus quoted to the men here. And so Jesus is called, uh, the Messiah is in the prophecies is called a king who'd rule the world in righteousness, and he would rule for the Jewish people. And so in Jesus' day, the men he's talking to, their opinion about who Jesus is, is that he would be the anointed one, a descendant of David, but just a man. In their mind, they never thought he'd be God himself in the flesh, but just a man. They were monotheistic to, for a man to claim that he was God was blasphemy. Later in, in the Bible, in John 8, it's earlier than this event that we read, but in John 8, Jesus said, made himself equal with God, and they picked up stones trying to stone him, and miraculously he walked away from them. They, they would always see it as blasphemy if he was God saying that he was God himself. So why... If Jesus was just what many people think is just a sage looking to influence the world, why would Jesus play into their hand God at all when he knew that would be a reason they would want to put him to death? Well, here's a, here's a um, news flash. Because he was. He wanted them to know the truth, even though it would be, in human terms, the thing that would make them 
want to put them to death or justify their envy that they, that they had to put and that forced them to put them to death. Jesus was God come to save us. And so that's why he shows them from their own Bible, the Psalms, Psalm 110, this verse in our little reading that says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. They had probably sang, read, and studied that psalm many times. And they had missed it all along. That there, in an indirect passage, David admits that his descendant would also be his Lord. And so Jesus says, why then did David call him Lord? How can he also be his son if he calls him Lord? And they couldn't say a word. They knew Jesus was claiming to be God. Later in that week, when he was brought before trial on Thursday night, Caiaphas, when he finally wanted to end the silence that Jesus was holding to, he said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, yes, I am. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and I will, you, I will be the judge and you will sit before me and you will be judged. They ripped their garments and said, blasphemy. They got him on Tuesday. They heard him say this on the end of the week. They got him to say it plainly. He had always called himself the son of man in a way that they couldn't tell if he was claiming to be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy about that or not. But now it's all coming together in this holy week. Jesus is God. A man who is also God come to save us. That's amazing. And it's amazing that he would, knowing they would use it to put him to death, that he would say it this week plainly because he had come to do just that. He's the judge of the world. Uh, Psalm 110 talks about him having a strong arm and a strong army and taking over the world. They'd always thought it was that the Messiah would be a military leader. Remember, they hoped they, on Palm Sunday of Holy Week, they had put down palm branches in their cloaks and let him ride over it like a king on a donkey into the city, singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Get rid of the Romans. Get rid of all of our enemies and usher in a time of prosperity and peace for Israel. And here he is. Saying he's God, he's not the one, he's an imposture, we don't believe in him. They were like so many people who write articles for magazines. They were not willing to say Jesus was God and man come to save them. All along, he knew this would be the way the story would go. He was writing the story because he knew he had to be sacrificed. In the same Bible that they studied in the Old Testament, it said that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be punished, and people would think that they were offering God's service, thinking he's suffering for his own sins, but it would be for ours. This is all in Isaiah 53. The son of David had come to be the son of God to save the sons of Adam so we could all be saved. But he had to sacrifice himself. Maybe you don't know this, but the psalm that Jesus quoted here, Psalm 110, 
is the psalm that is quoted in all of the New Testament writings. It's quoted a few times in the book of Hebrews written to convince Jews that Jesus was and is our Christ, our Messiah. In that letter of Hebrews, several times the verses pulled out of Psalm 110 are the verses that come later. This is, this, this is the verse in Psalm 110 that the writer to the Hebrews quotes. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, whose family was the high priest always a descendant of in all of the Old Testament history by God's command? Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron's family, someone who was a descendant of Aaron all the way down through the ages, had to be that the high priest would be selected from that family. Those high priests never dealt with sins once and for all. But Jesus did. And so the writer to the Hebrews, starting in chapter 5, he introduces the idea in the verse. He finishes explaining it in chapter 9 and even into chapter 10 of Hebrews. He talks all about this. But he says, I'm, as he's quoting Psalm 110, the same thing that Jesus quoted here. He says, he is a priest who sacrificed himself instead of a lamb or a bull. And it says in, in Hebrews took his blood as a sacrifice into the holies of heaven and sprinkled it on the altar of heaven before the Father and said, There, I've paid for all sins, chapter 9, once and for all. And then you look back at this verse. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool for your feet. And you know, just a couple verses later, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And it means that he is a priest that's going to sacrifice himself. And you fall in love with Jesus as your Savior from the guilt of your sins. Real quickly, Melchizedek, the original Melchizedek, was a king and a priest in the city of Jerusalem in the book of Genesis back in chapter 15. Melchizedek was a priest and a king that Abraham paid a tithe to that Melchizedek has in their story has no father or mother mentioned. He just appears and disappears. Jesus is a, is a priest in Jerusalem in the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron, whom God's people learned to pay sacrifices of praise to out of love and thanksgiving like Abraham did. It wasn't mandatory. He just did it out of thanksgiving and he gave it to, to Melchizedek. And we give our homage to Jesus because we believe in him. And here's these guys there that don't believe in him. And he's proclaiming and alluding to and quoting from all of their Bible saying, I am man and I am God and I am going to die for your sins, but I won't be dead. I'm going to live forever and rise from the dead and then declare all people forgiven. This is the heart and soul of the gospel. In this magazine, it's there in the articles as one choice among many about the meaning of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do you get what I'm saying? Just like it, believing that Jesus was their Redeemer and Savior was a choice among many ideas about who Jesus was in Jesus' own lifetime, in His own space, just like it was a choice then, it's a choice now. 
it's not going to be presented to you as the only choice like it was when you were a little child protected by your family and you were in Sunday school. Now you're going to be hit with all kinds of ideas from the grocery store, my H-E-B, or in the college classroom and everywhere in between. You're going to be slammed with different ideas about Jesus. And behind that is the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, trying to confuse confused Adam and Eve at the tree. That God cannot be trusted that he would sacrifice his son. That this is a Pollyanna message that doesn't have near the historical factuality that, you ought, that it ought to have to be provable and that you should not put your faith in that. It's only an opinion among many. Don't sucker for it. Jesus is the God-man came to come to save us. <clears throat> when he pointed in their own scriptures that the scriptures not only directly, but here indirectly call Jesus God, come to save us. What does it say happened? It says, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. How do we respond to all this? We trust his message, and we accept his grace. We believe in his love and forgiveness and we put our faith in him. And secondly, we proclaim it. We proclaim it in our lifetime, especially at Christmas and Easter. If magazines can proclaim that there is something about Jesus every Christmas and Easter in order to sell paper magazines, we can certainly proclaim it in order to buy human hearts with the blood of Christ. Yes, sometimes when we speak it, they're just going to be silent. But when they're silent, the seed is planted in the soil of their heart and it will grow. And I know stories about Christians who at first only had the seeds planted, but it grew later. And Jesus himself told parables about the growing seed of the gospel in people's heart until it was finally reaped. This is our time for planting, dear Christian. It's Advent. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas. It's even the world is saying it's okay to talk about Jesus during this time. So here's a little tip. Ask your family and friends that you are certain that they are uncertain about Jesus. Ask them, at Christmas time, what do you think about the baby Jesus? They may say, what are you asking me about? And say, who do you think he was? And then after they share who they thought he was, say, can I tell you what the Bible says about who he is? Just in a couple of sentences. He was God come to earth in a human body to die for you, for your sins, because you are a sinner. And if they're a family or a friend, you can tell, tell them the sins you know about to show that they are a sinner and that you are forgiven because he sacrificed himself in your place. And he took away your sin and the death that will follow it. Bam! Seed planted. If they're quiet, if they say, I don't want to talk about it anymore, don't get disappointed. They cannot unthink what you made them think by saying it to them. Just like these guys could not unthink it. And, and among those Pharisees was a guy named Nicodemus. And those seeds came to fruition in the very story. And by the time Jesus is just a few days later, taken down from the cross, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are there and they believe in him. And they were among the first Christians afterwards. 
So have faith in the gospel for yourself, but have faith in the gospel as a message to share. We don't do it to make money off a magazine. We do it to save souls. That's the meaning of Christ during Advent. Amen.